Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here with Russ Roberts. He's an economist, an author, a fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institute. He's the president of Shalem College, which I want to talk to him about today. And he's the host of Econ Talk, which is the gold standard for intellectual podcasting, uh, certainly uh, an example that I aspire to, something that I've learned from over the years. And he's also the author of a brilliant and beautiful and elegant book of self-help and philosophy and economics called Wild Problems, a guide to the decisions that define us. Welcome, Russ. Great to be with you, Zohar. I love your ideas. And although I don't know you, I think I love your personality and who you are even more. And so a question that I'm interested in pursuing with you is the interrelationship between who you are and how you live and the ideas that you care about. And I found your book, your your most recent book, to be deeply personal. And you, you write in the first person and you give personal examples, but it also has a lot of intellectual rigor to it. So feel free to riff on that in any direction, but maybe just to direct us a little bit. Um, tell me about your personal story and how it has led you to this current moment in your life, which is uh, not just being a theorist, but really being an institutional builder and uh, a leader of uh, a college. So I have an unusual career path. You know, I started off as a pretty standard academic. I went to graduate school, got my PhD, taught at a bunch of places, published, um, and uh, somewhere along the line ended up running an experiential learning center at Washington University in St. Louis in the business school, which was my first, and until now, pretty much my only um, bit of educational entrepreneurship. Uh, it was an amazing experience. I grew a lot from it, but it was a step away from sort of standard academic life. Uh, in that sense, it was good for me. I got, you know, I grew from it. Uh, and it. And at that point, I had more or less left the uh, standard world of peer-reviewed scholarship. I'd done some, but at that point I started writing novels for the general public uh, to learn about economics. I wrote a novel about trade policy. I wrote a novel called The Choice. I wrote a novel about um, a philosophical manifesto of free markets and classical liberalism called The Invisible Heart. And I wrote a book on emergent order called The Price of Everything. And somewhere in the middle of that, I got recruited by George Mason University to, to go teach there and uh, return to sort of a slightly more standard academic life. I, I became a blogger and in 2006 I started EconTalk and how EconTalk has changed over the years is the more interesting part of my own intellectual journey, which is really what your question was about. You know, it started off with me interviewing economists, typically people that I knew personally, uh, my advisors from graduate school or people I knew from my research or friends. And I did that for a while and I really enjoyed it. It was remarkably uh, rewarding compared to what I expected. I wanted to try it and know what it was gonna be like. Early on, I realized I had to put uh, an episode out every week or I would lose listeners. And so that discipline has been going for about 15 years now. It's um, 16 years old altogether. But somewhere in the course of doing that podcast, I lost interest in economics. Uh, in the sense of that I'd had an interest before. Uh, I became less dogmatic in my own 
view of economics, which I thought was very healthy. I should say that part of that came from the the experience of, of trying to be respectful of my guests. My early episodes, I think, are much more contentious. They're more like debates than conversations. And somewhere along the line, I realized that that I should be respectful of people who disagree with me. And, and that had the cost of reducing my own certainty and creating some uh, humility in the place of what was before uh, more hubris. And that was great. It was a great growth experience. Um, but I got more interested, less interested in, in the mechanisms of economics and more interested in philosophy and in education. And, and then the world changed. So 2016 came along in the United States. Um, and what I discovered was that the things that economists cared about weren't so interesting to people anymore. The, the issues that were front and center 10, 20, 30 years earlier were suddenly fringe issues. People were much more now concerned about it, their identity, what it meant to be an American, what was happening to American culture, uh, the quality of debate, polarization, um, our national narrative. And um, I started getting into those questions, started reading a lot more in those areas, started interviewing more guests from those experiences and those types of books on those types of issues. And some, we're in the middle of that, I got approached by uh, Shalem College here in Jerusalem to interview for the presidency of the college. And I had on the surface, and at least at first, no interest in that. And then I realized it's in some sense what I need to be doing. It's what I'm meant to be doing. Shalom College is the only liberal arts college in Israel. It certainly is deeply devoted to questions of what is the life well lived. And I realized that's stuff I had been thinking about. Um, another issue, by the way, that was important to me in those years, this, this sort of last five, six years period of this, this time was tribalism and belonging and um, and I suddenly, it became clear to me that I would find it deeply meaningful to be involved with an Israeli institution that was trying to make the country a, a, a better place. So in a way, it was a, a very hard decision to sell our house, put, give away half our stuff, put the other half in storage ship it across somewhere. It's somewhere near the Straits of Gibraltar right now, I'm hoping. Uh, it's on its way, the rest of our stuff. But um, it's that's kind of a crazy thing to do at, in, at the age of 66. And somehow it seemed like the only choice for me. So given that my wife agreed, you know, it was, it, we, we made that decision together, obviously. But that that that's a strange arc of um, how I spend my days. I still host econ talk. Uh, I still do some writing, but I spend a lot of my time trying to make uh, this college even better than it already is. And what a, what an amazing experience that is! Such a beautiful story, and I know you've got many moments that will define you ahead. Aspiration is a word that comes up a lot in the book. It's uh, it's also the title of Agnes Callard's book, who you've had as a guest on your show, and she's also appeared on mine. And I resonate deeply with the idea of aspiration, um, particularly the the idea um, connecting it to uncertainty, which is that we don't know um, who we're going to be when we set out on our journeys. And so um, as we, we can perhaps better predict 
uh, external outcomes, but we're not going to necessarily be able to predict existential outcomes. And so you kind of, on the most important questions, have to take a certain leap of faith. Is that something that you discovered later in life? Is that is that is that insight something that came out of your dialogue and out of your loosening the grip of of certainty in general? Or do you feel like you've always been guided by a sense of aspiration, sort of implicitly? Well, certainly not the latter. Um, it is something, something that certainly came to me later in, in, in my life. Um, I'm a big fan of Agnes's book and, and uh, that phenomenon itself of aspiring. One of the values of that book is that it gets you to think about it. And, and I, I try to do the same in my book. You know, I think there's a lot of value often in um, being focused, being aware of things that, of course, you know about these things, but you don't think about them or you forget to think about them. Um, I'd say most of my life I was more achievement oriented and you could confuse those two things, achievement and aspiration, because often we aspire to be, say, successful. And I certainly aspired to be successful, but what success meant and how I would think about that and measure were two different things. I would say for a decent chunk of my life, I spent time daydreaming, to the extent I thought about the future, it was daydreaming about what might happen to me on my current course. The idea of changing course or wondering whether I was on the right course was not something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And, I th and, and when I did change course, it was usually through external <laughs> events beyond my control, which is not unusual. I think a lot of us have that, that experience, right? You get, um, the next thing you know, you're over the side of the boat and you've been swallowed by a large fish and you've got to cope with that. You can't just say, well, I'll just pretend this is a boat like a different kind, but a different kind. No, you're, you're knocked up the side of the head by, um, by life and you're forced to cope with an unexpected uh, set of events. The idea that you might anticipate that or the idea that you might uh, open yourself to experience an unexpected events it's not was not common for me. So that's definitely been something that's changed as I've gotten older. Um, I just happened to have seen an extraordinary piece of theater called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, it's an adap adaptation of, of Oscar Wilde's novel, uh, and it's a one-woman show. She plays 26 different roles. And, it's, and on the surface, that seems like shtick. This was in Melbourne, Australia, where I was for the birth of our first grandchild. But it was, we got to go out to the theater one night and, and we saw the show and I thought, eh, it's kind of fun and 26 roles. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen on stage. Um, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, and Dorian Gray is a person who has a certain uh, attitude toward life and things just spiral downward <laughs> in, a, in a really extraordinary and and powerful way. And I think if we're not careful, I mean, the reason that's a great piece of literature is it's it's a warning. It's a different kind of getting knocked up the you know on the, up the side of the head, and rather than by life, it's by a work of art, and it should grab your attention. So it's to say, hey, the, don't let this be you. Uh, and so, I think it's a very profound question. I you know I try to deal with it as best I can in my book of how we should think about quote the rest of our life. Um, do we just keep bobbing along like a cork in the ocean wherever the currents take us? Should we try to have a big plan that we try to implement or is it a mix of both? And um, 
come back full circle to your question, you know, most of my life, I never thought about that. You know, I was going to do X, Y, or Z and, and be successful, I hoped. And I didn't think a lot about what else I might be doing. And I think um, being aware of that is maybe it's part of growing up. And some people grow up more earlier than others, but it certainly took me a long time. You mentioned, though, that this is also a movement away from dogma, which I guess is a, is a general story. But there's also perhaps um, a dogma baked into the economic discipline. I'm sure that you could find dogma in any discipline. But um, in, in discovering this, you've moved away perhaps from an identity as just an economist to something more humanistic, I, I would say, maybe more philosophical, more searching. So... You have life advice to give for everyone, but you also have something to say to economists. How do you communicate your message to economists in a way that might persuade them? Or is it just the kind of thing that they have to experience in order to get this this hard-bought lesson? That's a hard um, hard thing to think about. I, I don't want to be... Um, I don't want to overgeneralize, but, but I think... I think there's a religious aspect to a lot of, of our beliefs, right? Certainly often to our religious beliefs, by definition, almost tautologically. But a lot of the other parts of our identity, whether it's a political party or an ideology or our career, uh, the kind of um, what it means, say, to be a lawyer or a doctor or an economist, a journalist, um, we have certain things we hold dear as part of that identity that we don't want to look at very closely is the way I would describe it. That's certainly true of our religious beliefs. You know, most of us have doubts about whether we're religious or no matter how religious we are, we often have doubts about our religion. And interestingly, I'm not sure it's any different than in other parts of our life. Uh, we have some doubts, but we don't like to think, we don't like to, I would say it this way, we don't like to dwell on the doubts. And so when doubts arise, we just, we just push them down. Uh, when things happen that say challenge our religious beliefs, we just stop thinking about them. When things happen that challenge our economics, our beliefs as an economist, we just push them down. If they challenge our ideology or our political stance, say, or our political party, we just push them down. Uh, the obvious version of this is confirmation bias, right? We only anything that confirms our viewpoint, we say, oh, that's very, that's very well said, or that's very good evidence. If it doesn't confirm it or if it challenges it, we, we dismiss it. We say, oh, it's a bad study. Of course they found that. Well, they would. It's a bad study. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating question of how who we are is this, you know, this bundle of, of beliefs about ourselves. And you can't, function in life if you're constantly questioning all those pieces of yourself. You have to, you have to hold some of them uh, tightly and, and, and keep them away from unease and doubts. Um, you know, this would include you know, our personal lives, whether I'm a good father, whether I'm a good husband, um, whether I'm a good Jew, whether I'm a good economist. These are all the same kinds of phenomena. We don't think of them as similar, but I think they're quite similar. And I've totally forgotten your question now. It has something to do about, about dogma, but my, you know, dogma is comforting. Dogma is how we, I don't sit up every morning and wonder, 
in the dark, uh, is the sun going to come up this morning? You know, I just, a bunch of things are like that. I just take them for granted so I can live my life. And it's probably a good idea most of the time. Uh, but at various times, you know, we're jarred out of our complacency and forced to be um, open-minded. And it's very powerful and it's threatening, scary, but it's also an opportunity for growth. But you can re-ask your question now. That I totally no that that was that was kind of a, both a spiritual and a psychological answer to my question. I, I was I had a rhetorical question, which is maybe not as good as the answer that uh, that you gave, but it was just about persuading or communicating your insight to people who um, might be threatened by the very concept of uncertainty or the very concept of aspiration. Is it just rabbit and duck? Like you see it this way because you're in a certain phase of life. They see it that way because, you know, they haven't yet been, their boat hasn't been shaken. And so you just, it's it's not really in your control. It's, it's up to, you know, you want to call it God or life or fate or whatever. Or, or is this like a uh, fair game in the arena and, you know, let the better argument win and your argument can win? Well, but I, I now remember what I was going to say before, which is that we're so socialized say as economists or academics or members of a religious community, you know, again, all these things are, are, have a certain similarity. There's certain rules of conduct. There are certain norms of, of thought. And I'll give you an example in economics. Um, listeners to my podcast, know I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of empirical results that, that economists find and then sell intellectually in the marketplace of ideas is, you know, this is what I've discovered, here's the truth. And that aspect of academic life has taken a terrible blow, I think for the good, uh, in the last 10 years or so, as people have realized that peer-reviewed is not always true. Uh, sometimes things that are peer-reviewed are literally not just not true, but false, and not just because there's fraud, which is happens tragically, but also because of confirmation bias and the norms of the profession are such that certain analytical and statistical techniques are just taken as reliable, even if you know maybe there's some doubt about it. So I've become a big doubter in that area. And when I encounter economists who haven't come to that point, it's weird to talk to them because they're so their certainty is so palpable to me. Their overconfidence is so palpable to me. So the example I, I would give is a, an economist gave a workshop I was at, a seminar of, a few years ago, and he presented a bunch of results, table after table after table of these findings and, and assuring us that they were all you know, precisely measured and accurate and so on. And at one point, I, I just raised my hand and I said, how many regressions did you run? Meaning, how many statist different statistical analyses did you do? Because I'm not, I suspect I'm not seeing every one of them. I'm seeing the ones that you've somehow decided are the right ones and you've decided to throw out the others. And just, just tell me what the denominator was. You know, am I seeing 80% of them, 5% of them? And the question was so um, alien to him. His reaction wasn't, oh, well, I did about, I probably did, I don't know, I guess I did about a thousand and you're seeing about 70 of them. He didn't even, it had never crossed his mind. He'd never asked himself that question. No one had ever asked himself that question before. And it was a, um, I don't know if it 
woke him up or if it was useful or provocative, but he did not answer the question. It didn't even cross his mind. And the idea that that might be useful to me to know how much time he spent in the kitchen cooking up the results that he chose to put out on my table, it was like weird. It was like culturally weird for him. And so that was against the rules. Economists don't ask those general, I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be so dramatic about how I'm, I'm unique. I'm sure people have asked questions like that before. But for him, it was like shocking. He didn't know what to do with it. And so when you ask me what it's like, there is a sense in which I've, I struggle to reinsert myself in the norms of my profession. You know, it's a little about, again, to, I don't want to over push this, but, you know, or oversell this, but, you know, somebody who becomes religious and then walks away from it and goes back to the community that they used to be part of, it's a weird feeling because everyone else has all the same norms they had before, but you've left those behind and vice versa. You have a bunch of friends who aren't religious and you become religious they're suddenly, you're looking at them like, Why, what are they doing? And they're looking at you going, what are you doing? <laughs> and so there, there's a certain cultural set of cultural norms around all these pieces of our identity that I think are very uncomfortable for most of us to think about most of the time, so we don't. And sometimes you've, you're, you're confronting them when you realize that you've changed or that you think about things differently. It can be very vitalizing and very lonely to be at odds with one's community or one's profession. So the the loneliness, I think, is so obvious, but there's also, if you want to use the economic language of trade-offs, there's so much to be gained from being an individual, even if it creates that dissonance. Yeah. So I was imagining a two-by-two when I was listening to you before, um, and the two-by-two is something like um, religious versus liberal, and then aspiration. So you can be a religious person who aspires, you can be a religious person who doesn't aspire. You can be a liberal who aspires and you can be a liberal who doesn't aspire. Uh, I, I, when I say liberal, what I, I'll get to the definition in a second, but I think there's a way in which your, your book is deeply religious and I think there's a way in which your book is deeply secular. And that's where this is coming from. So let me say why I think it's religious and why I think it's secular. I think it's religious because taking your life seriously is something that we find in all of the great spiritual thinkers throughout the ages, whether it's, you know, Augustine, whether it's Pascal, um, whether it's Paul, whether it's the Hebrew prophets, it's basically having Luther, having a sense of conscience, having a sense of God is calling me out and telling me, hey, snap out of it. That just seems profoundly religious. It seems like the the discovery that life is a wild problem is synonymous with, with the spiritual quest. The way in which I think it's secular is that, um, or can be secular, is that a lot of religious people in the sociological sense are conformists. There's the law, there's behavior, uh, which is governed by a set of uh, methods. And in some sense, the job of religion understood in, in, the, in the way of conformity and social order is to really contain the wild problems and domesticate them and make them tame again. And so um, there's a way in which you can read the book and say this is a work of religious existentialism, but there's another way in which you could read the book and really say this is a book that is championing liberty in the sense of saying your life is yours to live. And you give an, an example in the book, one of my favorite examples is Darwin's question, should he marry? And you've got his, his pros on one side and his cons on the other. 
And Darwin, as far as I recall, although he was a religious person, is not um, was not asking himself, does God want me to marry? Do I have an obligation uh, to marry? Does the law require me to marry? He's he's asking it in an existential way, which is which which um, decision is going to be best for the person that I want to be. And that kind of theological detachment, in a way, strikes me as not possible or far less possible in an ancient society or a pre-modern society where so many questions are just outsourced to a rabbi or a pope or some system that tells you what to do. And you're not telling people in the book, I think the best life is one in which you get married and have kids. You're saying, I want you to have the tools to best understand that this is a difficult question, but it's one that is going to define you regardless. So I, I guess I filled out three of the quadrants. And then I think the, the way in which secularism doesn't aspire is that a lot of people have a lazy attitude towards liberty, where they think that um, liberty is just the right to do X rather than the substantial ability to sort of think about the meaning of life because you're free to do X. So it becomes a kind of liberty becomes something like consumerism, but there's just as much conformity in secular society as there is in religion. I mean, I just gave you a lot, but like, how do you think about those quadrants and whether you think of the book as religious or secular or sort of reconstituting the the divide between the spiritual and the modern? We probably could spend another couple hours just on this question. Maybe we should. We'll see how it goes. But because it's a profound question, I do think about it from time to time. And I think in many ways it gets at what is essential about a so-called religious life and what is essential about a so-called secular life. Let's start with the religious first. I think there's definitely a sense in which religion is the accepting of constraints to avoid a set of many choices, right? Uh, Whether that's the goal or not, it's irrelevant. Certainly, if you take on a serious religious life, in Judaism in particular, where there are many explicit legal restrictions that you are encouraged to think of as your responsibility, um, it rules out a lot of things, you know? Um, adultery, for just for example, murder, uh, those are some of the big ones, but it's even being a, a high school football fan in, in rural Texas, because it's Friday night and you're not gonna supposed to be out at the, where the lights are bright, even if you could keep Jewish law and go there and have someone take care of your ticket for you and all that. It's, um, as we say in, in Yiddish, it's not Shabbos stick. It's not in the spirit of the Sabbath. So, so I think there's one sense in which that's true, that, that in that sense, religion is not so aspirational. It, it's, it's about narrowing, if anything, what you might aspire to be. You're not gonna be, it's much harder to be a successful uh, professional basketball player, just to take one, another example, if you're gonna not be able to work on Friday night and Saturday day. But in other sense, I don't think that's exactly right. So only, that's why I want to push back a little bit on your on your um, um, summary. I think there's an enormous aspirational component to the religious life, and it, it maybe this is a more modern phenomenon in Judaism. Uh, and I can't speak to other religions, but certainly in Judaism, many many of the, of Jewish ritual, many many Jewish rituals have been reconfigured to be more like. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It's a day of self-reflection. It's a day of aspiration. It's a day of saying, you know, I'm going to be better. I've got to do better next year. Um, I like Shai Held's insight. Shai said, uh, 
his favorite uh, day of the year is Yom Kippur because, you know, you're holy and you're not eating and you're exploring your own relationship with the Almighty and you're reckoning with your own imperfections. And he says his least favorite day of the year is the day after Yom Kippur. <laughs> Somehow those, that powerful experiences, you're back to the same person again. You got the same temptations, the same flaws. Um, and I think to a large extent in modern Jewish practice, other holidays have become Yom Kipperized, right? Pesach, Passover, is now, isn't just the commemoration of the exodus from Egypt and the, and the establishment of the Jewish people. It's also a time when you escape your personal Mitzrayim, your personal limitations, your personal Egypt. Uh, it's a very Hasidic idea. So in many ways, I could keep going. In many ways, a lot of these holidays or periods of the Jewish calendar have been reconfigured philosophically and culturally to become forms of self-improvement and aspiration, that you can be a better person. You can talk less poorly about other people. You can be more generous with your charity. You can spend more time studying. You can enhance your observing of various Jewish laws. So in that sense, I think you're your two-by-two table is missing something. Can I interject on that? Please. So I I totally agree that, that religion can accommodate that view of it. But you mentioned Hasidism. Hasidism is a modern movement that's coming into global history around the same time that in Christianity you have the rise of, of similar piety, pietistic movements, which are exactly about elevating to a religious ideal, the self. It's not clear to me, though, when you look at pre-modern cultures, whether you would find that. So I would say religion can certainly survive modernity, and maybe the seeds of this idea of become authentic are to be found in scripture and, and in earlier thinkers. But then the question is, is that just sociological coincidence that modernity has figured out how to give more agency to the self? Or is there a kind of revolt against uh, another tendency in religion that was more elevated in pre-modern times? And the people that pushed that revolt tended to be more on the secular side. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know. That's a good point. I, I think it's, I, I guess I just say it's complicated. I think, um, and obviously, you know, secular people can aspire in many different ways and religious people can, um, I'm suggesting can aspire, but it's, um, I would guess that to some extent, your two by two tables capturing something culturally about, about modernity. So, you know, I think the other piece of this, and you, you'll tell me how it fits into the two by two table, but I, I, think, I think if you take religion seriously, you have to confront the possibility that you have obligations. Now, what those obligations are are going to vary by religion. They're going to vary by what flavor of, of whatever religion you follow is. But I think somewhere, you know, if you, and this would include merely, you know, quote, merely, it sounds offend, I didn't mean it to be condescending, spiritual people, people who are, who are, who feel some connection to the, to the transcendent, but without the burden or help of explicit legalisms. The yoke. Uh, the yoke, yes, the yoke. That's with an L. 
I mean, I mean, it's with a <laughs> K-E and not an L-K, the yoke, the yoke of heaven. Um, th- there's a sense of obligation in that sense. You know, this is what I thought you were going to say. I think if you take the idea of, of religion seriously or the divine, y- you feel a responsibility for what you do with your life. Um, it's not necessarily that you have to be a saint, <laughs> uh, but there's a recognition that you're not just a random collection of atoms and molecules to enjoy the pleasures of life. I think inevitably most religious um, impulses have to confront that, that sense of obligation. And um, I- I've not thought about it a lot um, consciously, but I suspect unconsciously it's part of who I am in some way. There's so much in the concept of the wild problem. And uh, I, you could maybe just give a couple sentences on how you define it in contrast to a, to a tame or, or non-wild problem. Well, I define a wild problem as a problem where making the right, you're faced with, confronted with a decision where data and evidence are of very limited value and often will mislead you. I, I use examples of whether to marry, whether to have children, who to marry, uh, what kind of career to choose, where you live, how much time you devote to your friends versus your own personal well-being, uh, and so on. And some of what pushed me to write about this is the very recent um, seductive power of big data and a belief that just if we just have enough data, we can answer every problem, we'll solve every mystery, we'll, it's just a matter of time. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a belief that the world is material, that science is inevitable, the progress of science is inevitable. And if there's anything science hasn't illuminated so far, it's just because we haven't gotten enough data or the data aren't quite good enough. And more data is always better than, than less and um, using it's always better than not using it. And of course, it's often true. <laughs> it's very important to say that. I mean, you know, when I when I talk about the challenges of using data wisely, people say, "Well, you're not. You're, you're against science, or you're irrational." No, no. The, the science is about using data thoughtfully, <laughs> and and not about using data per se. Data per se, or Greek letters, or mathematical equations, are not inherently scientific. They can be, but it's not a guarantee. And so. My suggestion, you know, it reminds me of um, uh, my, my previous book was on Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments, which was written in 1759. And it's a, that book is about what motivates us. It's about human, the nature of, of deep satisfaction. It's about what is the source of our well-being and, and contentment. And it's about why we do things that help others, even though they come at a cost to ourselves. That's what Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments was about. It was written in 1759. And I gave a, a seminar on it at, at Stanford and a, an economist, I won't name, but uh, certainly a, a deeply respected, high quality academic economist said, well, this is all lovely, but surely we've learned something since 1759. I mean, why are we reading this book? I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's charming maybe or amusing here and there. And, and of course, my answer, I don't remember what I literally said at the time, but my answer is uh, some mysteries will never be resolved. The, the, what is the nature of, of human beings and what makes us tick and what floats our boat 
and why we do what we do. It's not, I mean, there, there are scientific aspects to it, but it's not like we've made that much progress since 1759 in being, say, content. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I actually, uh, I quoted, uh, so when I told the story, I mean, they, they quoted uh, Ronald Coase to me. And uh, can I digress for a minute and find you this quotation? Because it's, it's so uh, fantastic. Or do you want me to carry on? Go for it. Okay. So Ronald Coase, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, passed away in the last uh, decade or so. Coase uh, wrote an article on uh, Adam Smith not not coincidentally, and it was called Adam Smith's View of Man. And at the end of that, so this is a much better answer than I, whatever I said at the time, he, he said the following at the end of that uh, article. Uh, he says, the essay, um, he says, Smith would not have thought it sensible to treat man as a rational utility maximizer. He thinks of man as he actually is, dominated, it is true, by self-love, but not without some concern for others, able to reason, but not necessarily in such a way as to reach the right conclusion, seeing the outcomes of his actions, but through a veil of self-delusion. No doubt, modern psychologists have added a great deal, some of it correct, to this 18th century view of human nature. So the part I love is that line, some of it correct. Of course, some of it's not correct because the nature of that uh, enterprise is remarkably uncertain. It's, uh, it's not like engineering where we've made progress using calculus and the stress that a bridge can undergo or trying to figure out how, many, how to build a better computer chip. Uh, building a happier person is not, um, it's not like calculus, it's different. And so, I think recognizing that's a really good idea. Okay, this is kind of a weird follow-up. I'll see if I can find the words. There's a theory that, let's say, in in ancient times, there had been fewer discoveries, and so it was much easier to have a breakthrough, whether in math or science. And then just um, the more that we progress, the harder it is to to sort of be a genius uh, because there's less low-hanging fruit. And so I, I don't know if I agree with that theory, but let's just posit it for a second. Do you think that the set of wild problems remains the same over generations? Or do you think that in a weird way, modernity means more problems are wild and more liberty means more problems are wild? Or do you think that um, as human beings get better at domesticating the the problems that really should be domesticated, they'll be freed up to focus on wild problem, problems and realize that there aren't so many of them. You know, you mentioned a handful before, but maybe, you know, there's only 10, 10 wild problems in life. Yeah, just little things like whether to get married and who to marry, how many children to have, if any. No, the problem, of course, is that, as I, as I argue in the book, is that I think the the success we've had in taming many problems in life with technology and data means that the ones that are left are extremely frustrating. Like, come on, where's the app that tells me who to marry? Of course, you could argue there are some that don't think they work very well. Um, I also argue that a lot of these problems weren't problems in ancient times. It wasn't so much that we were better at solving them, it's just they weren't choice variables. 
you got married if you could. If you get somebody to marry you, you'd marry them. If you could have kids, you would. There wasn't even a, a choice. And I think to some extent, the fact that these have become choices for modern people is very frustrating, very st- induces a lot of stress and anxiety. I, I want to return back to your question about the low-hanging fruit, though, and discoveries. I think there's some truth to that, but there's some parts of it that, of course, aren't true. Do you think it's harder to write a good song because so many have been written? Is it hard? Is it is it harder to write a good poem? I mean, because uh, uh, Tennyson's Ulysses took up all the good ones, all the good lines. <laughs> so I can't I can't say to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Tennyson already did that. I've got to find my own. Right? It, certainly, art is is fascinatingly different than scientific discovery for that reason. Um, so I, I would just I would say I would say the following. I don't think we're that much better at figuring out what is the life well lived. Uh, I think a thoughtful person struggles with that ever and always. Um, you know, there's an article by David Chalmers, this, the philosopher who's complaining about why philosophy has made so little progress on, on fundamental questions. And, you know, I don't want to be unfair to him, but all these fundamental questions, they don't have answers. Well, that's why we haven't made any progress. <laughs> the idea isn't to answer them, it's to think about them thoughtfully. And I think that's a lot of what I'm arguing for in the book is that these are not, you know, whether you should get married isn't a question that has a, a right answer. It's something you have to struggle with as a human being, what, who to marry for sure, whether to have children. Um, it's not for everybody. It's not like you just have to figure out what the right answer. It's hard and 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 it's, um, it's not that different to the question of what is the life well lived? I mean, the answer to that is something human beings have thought about radically in radically different ways over millennia. And it's not because, oh, well, now's different. Because it's not different. I still have the same fundamental urges. I have the same challenges. I have the same self-delusion that Coase talked about with respect to Adam Smith that in, as our, part of our humanity. Those things don't change. They haven't changed. They're not going to change. So thinking about life in some sense, like a song or a poem, it, that's not something that, that can be solved by a previous artist. That's something that each artist has to solve for him or herself. Yeah, that's well said. That's exactly right. And what, I, what I'm arguing for is to work on your craft. Uh, it's, it's not to decide whether you're a sonnet or a haiku. It's to be engaged with the act of creation. It's to be engaged with the act of self, being self-aware that you're fashioning your own life to the best you can, subject to the fact that surprises are inevitable and many things are beyond your control. Let's say that at T1, I make a decision that seems authentic to me in the moment. And I, I feel like, you know, I've read Wild Problems. I've, I've been inspired by it. And I've decided that I'm not going to look to the data and to science to tell me what to do here. I'm just going to go and do it. But five years later, I feel unhappy with the consequences of my decision. And I look back on at T1 ha- having become a different person because I've been I'm now defined by the choice that I've made. Should I regret what I've done? Should I should I spend time wishing I could go back and do the other thing? Or is that just the grass is always greener and that's a temptation and I just I should focus on what I can do now and and what I and what I've learned from it and I guess another way of saying that is if a decision is made authentically can it be a wrong decision? First of all, you know, happiness is overrated. <laughs> it's one of the 
Sure, I, think, I things, agree with that. Um, but maybe, but maybe I, I use the wrong word, and I, I mean like um, discontent. Maybe I'm ashamed of what I've become because of that decision. Yes, yes. Uh, that's the Dorian Gray story. I'm fascinated by regret and forgiveness. Uh, I talk a little bit about it in the book, not not as much as I might. Um, I do think it's strange that we think of things as mistakes when we have imperfect information. And what's a mistake in the face of of that amount of uncertainty about, say, marrying the wrong person or failing to have a child or having a child and then feeling that it has constrained you in ways that have taken away your ability to flourish, say, for example. A lot of the books, um, there's a chunk of the book that's that's talks about the the pleasures and virtues of having children, because I think to, to a large extent, those are invisible to us until we have them. But that doesn't mean having children is for everyone or a good idea for everyone. Uh, you know, I use the example of Kafka in the book who decides not to marry. His list, like Darwin's list is fascinating because it clearly suggests he should not marry. He does anyway. Perhaps the greatest scientist of all time decides to ignore the, what appears to be his calm, sober, rational set of thoughts on this, so-called rational thoughts. Kafka goes the other way. Kafka, worried about the impact of marriage on his productivity, as was Darwin, uh, decides not to marry. But the point is, you're so in the dark before you make that leap into marriage or or children. You think you have some knowledge of of what it's going to be like, but you don't, actually. And so I asked the question, in what sense could it possibly be a mistake? So that's one response to your challenge. I certainly don't think it's good to dwell in the past, but um, sometimes it's hard not to. I mean, I think that's one of the fascinating aspects of being a human being. I mentioned earlier, we had our first grandchild. Uh, Somebody recently pointed out to me that only only human beings have grandchildren, have grand offspring. Animals have offspring. They don't have, they're they're not connected to the offspring of their offspring. That's really interesting. And as human beings, we are, one of the reasons being a grandparent is profound is because you can reflect back on what it was like to be a parent. And you now see your child walking in your path in a way that you couldn't until they had their own children. I mean, that's just really rich. It fills you up in, in, in all kinds of ways. So inevitably, inevitably as human beings, we're constantly looking back to the past We call it memory, and we look to the future and we call that planning or expectations or aspiration. That's a huge part of of what it means to be a human being. At the same time, we understand that we live in the, only live in the present in any real sense, this moment. And And of course, a lot of religion, certainly Buddhism, but also aspects of Judaism, and I suspect Christianity, they're about reminding you that don't, don't, don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. This is now. This is it. And, and I think if we're not careful, we make a million mistakes in the sense that we might have wished it to have turned out otherwise. But what an unfruitful way to approach the present and the future. I, um, I used to think that forgiveness was dangerous, especially self-forgiveness because it, it allows you to, to avoid your personal responsibilities. You can say, well, eh, I'm imperfect, I'm flawed, I made a mistake. I was selfish, I didn't help that person, I should have. Eh, I forgive myself. 
And I used to think, well, that's dangerous because then I can't improve. I need to hold myself accountable and I need to flagellate myself for my shortcomings because otherwise, how will I get better? And I think that's wrong. I, I think there's a very strong component of Judaism that works in that direction. I, it doesn't work for me. There's another part of Judaism. It's in you know Rabbi Nachman where he encouraged you, instead of saying, look at all the horrible things I've done, rather look at all the good things I've done and I need to build on those rather than avoid the ones of the past. And that works better for me, I think. I certainly feel better, by the way. So I have to be careful. I, you know, if you're not careful, you just, you avoid these uh, unpleasant moments of self-reflection. But I think regret of that kind, uh, of beating yourself up, is not very helpful in, in moving forward. And it does burden the present in ways that I don't think are so helpful. I think there's a meta-ethical component to your book. So Kant would say, follow the categorical imperative. And there's a test for knowing whether you're following it, which is just, is it universalizable? And a wild problem is the exact opposite. It's a kind of singular categorical imperative. It's do that which cannot be, <laughs> which cannot be scaled. Do that which, which is non-fungible. Do that which makes you you. And if I wanted to put it in religious terms, um, religious existentialist terms, do that which confirms that you are made in the divine image and not a, a robot. So a meta-ethical requirement is that you behave in that way. In other words, it's, it's sort of paradoxical. There still is an imperative. There still is an ethical command. But... Um, part of what you're being commanded to do is to differentiate, to, to individuate. And so a person could fail in that. A person could treat a wild problem as if it were tame. A person could work in consulting for many years instead of found the company that they really want to found simply because it's the safer option and or safer as, as they perceive safe. And those people who don't who don't pursue the wild problem, who who seek to make the wild problem tame, they may have a midlife crisis, or they may just live with a certain humdrum despair and carry on. But <laughs> on the other side of it, the person who does pursue the wild problem is going to have a lot of ups, a lot of downs, a lot of volatility, um, because precisely because the wild problem doesn't lead you to a place you can know in advance. So. What if it leads you to a place where you feel like, oi, <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure. Um, on the one hand, if, if, you, if you acted authentically in the original moment, then it shouldn't matter. That's what I'm getting at. Then you should just say, I, I, can, live with, I can live with the fact that I made a decision authentically and the outcome is sort of morally irrelevant. Or... Is it that we want to fuse the pursuit of the wild with some kind of guardrail in order to protect against whatever downside might come from just making hay of the decision? And I'll, just to concretize the question a little bit. So um, I wrote my PhD on Heidegger. You know, Heidegger was a Nazi. He was uh, a very influential thinker and and one of the criticisms of Heidegger is that he tells you to be authentic but he doesn't tell you what authenticity means and so if authenticity leads you to commit evil um 
as long as you made the decision authentically, you know, that's, that's good. And so, um, to, to, to rein in the wild problem of what decisions should I, should you make, you need some kind of ethical code or some kind of objective thing. And so the question is just, how do you articulate the fact that maybe what we need is a uh, wild plus something else? And then that something else is constraining the wild. So for example, um, don't, don't pursue a wild problem if it's going to lead you to commit evil, that seems like a kind of potentially easy one, but then it does raise the question of what is evil in, in when a lot of, I want to get into the parallels between your thought and Heidegger's a little bit, but maybe I'll just leave it at, um, the challenge of moral relativism to those who make authenticity their highest ideal. You could make it even a a less dramatic point by saying, well, you know, you you did the best you can with the data and you make your best guess in the face of limited data. And if it turns out badly, you can't fault yourself because you did the best you could. Um, You know, authenticity is a different value than rationality. Uh, religious religiosity is a different value, but of course, you you think you you're doing what God wants, and you become you can become a very dark person if you if you're you either get the wrong God or you <laughs> misinterpret the sign or um, you know Abraham and Isaac the the Akeda, the Binding of Isaac is a perfect example. Of that is is Abraham a monster for listening to God there, or is he doing the highest possible level of religious service? I'm not sure it's helpful to pick a value like authenticity or religiosity or rationality and say I'm going to clutch that so closely to my breast that regardless of what happens, I'll have nothing to be ashamed of. Because what we just said that there's hard there's times it's hard to interpret exactly what the divine wants or what authenticity demands or what rationality actually is in this situation. I just want to put one other footnote on this. Maybe I'll say something else. But the you know wild problems are not risk taking. So if if you if you're trying to decide whether to marry or not and you decide not to, you can have deep regrets twenty years later. If you have children, you make the leap of faith and you have children, you're not sure it's a good idea and it's delightful. And then there's a person who doesn't have children and they regret it. Or there are people who have children who regret it because their careers turn out very differently or their children turn out in ways that are pain- incredibly painful. So it's the whole thing's a crapshoot. Let, let's, just, let's just start there, right? To demand certainty of life is, is a very human impulse and it's a mistake because it's not available. Uh, except in the grave, and maybe not even there. So, I mean, if you're going to be alive and you're going to have to make your way through life, you have to face these kind of, part of the point of my book is you have to face these kind of decisions, even if the answer is no, you're still facing the choice. So I think the, the deeper question you're raising is that inevitably the choices we make come with baggage and pain and suffering that we have to live with. And do we live with those by saying, oh, I made a terrible mistake eight years ago when I moved or when I married or when I had a kid or when I changed my career? Or or do you say, you know, I'm a human being. I can't know how things are going to turn out. 
I do the best I can in the face of profound ignorance. And I merely try to be a mensch along the way and live with the consequences of my actions, even when I don't always like them. And I think the psychological coping mechanisms we have are very imperfect, right? It's one of the pains of being human. It's what I was trying to say earlier very poorly about memory and looking ahead. You know, it's probably why regret is such a toxic emotion. I'll never forget this. I once was, um, someone once told me of, of the time that they were playing with their, with their child and their child fell and had to have terrible uh, surgery to repair teeth that were damaged, okay? And it happens. It's part of being a parent. Part of being a parent is things will happen to your children that either are literally your fault or they're implicitly your fault because you could have done something different. You could have acted differently that day. You could have made a different choice. And that's an aspect of regret that I think haunts most of us as human beings in very, very painful ways. What was profound about what this person said is that he said, when my son was going through this experience, uh, because I was beating myself up in the name of virtue, I was beating myself up saying, I could have prevented this, or I should have prevented this. Because I was beating myself up, I was not fully available to my son. Because when I looked at him and I saw the pain he was enduring, I had to look away because it was a condemnation of who I was because I had failed my son. And what that meant is that I was continuing to fail my son because what he needed from me was love and care. And instead I was struggling to connect with him because he was a constant reminder of my failure. And that I think is a profound insight into why regret and self-blame is actually quite destructive because it actually, if we're not careful, prevents us from doing what we are capable of doing in the face of life's uncertainty, which is loving your son who is in pain and giving your son support. Instead, he realized that his desire to condemn himself, which came from a good place, but that desire of regret and self-blame meant that he could not be there for his son in a way that he was needed. And I think that's very deep. I think that's, uh, it took me a long, I would, if you had told me that story 20 years ago, I would have, I would have found it offensive. <laughs> and instead, I, uh, I'm at a place now where I think it's actually quite, quite true, quite helpful. That story resonates deeply with me, and I, I thank you for sharing it on this conversation. Why, why would it have offended you 20 years ago? Oh, because you're going to forgive yourself? How, again, oh, so the next time you're out playing with your son, you're going to be careless again. I don't think that's true. Um, for starters, I, I did 20 years ago. I think that's false. Um, I would have said 20 years ago, well, self-judgment's very important. How am I gonna assess myself? How am I gonna move forward? You know, forgiving yourself is just a way of excusing bad behavior. So part of it's misunderstanding what the word forgive means. In this case, by the way, it wasn't, it's like, God forbid if he'd been drunk when he was playing with his kid and his kid smashed his teeth up, okay. He made a terrible mistake. This wasn't that kind of thing. He just didn't see it in time to prevent it. 
it's just not the right way to, to go through life. But most human beings do beat themselves up over those kind of things all the time, for, for, especially for their children or their loved ones. And um, I'm not saying, oh, don't do that, because I, don't, I think it's a very human, inevitable response. But I think it's important to be aware of that it comes with a cost. And it's not uh, just that you're going to have guilt over it. And so for forgiveness isn't about saying, oh, I did the right thing no matter what. Forgiveness is about saying it's in the past. It's not helpful to dwell on it. Uh, and when it comes from another person, I'm often going to try to say I'm not in their shoes. I don't know what they went through. So I'm not going to judge them as harshly as I might want to. And um, I think it makes the world a better place, actually. Do you think something like the feeling of being connected to somebody, because you, you, you just mentioned sort of the, the father being disconnected from the son because of his, his own focus on his his feelings rather than the son's pain. Do you think this this value of feeling connected is something that we have academic language for, or is it, or is that too just almost in a way a kind of mystical or spiritual thing? Because I feel like we're very good in sort of utilitarian philosophy at talking about the the teeth and the surgery <laughs> and m- much hard it's much harder for us to put into words what it what it would mean to feel that you're accompanying someone or that you're being accompanied in the hospital like i don't think any of us would choose let's say to have an accident um and then be accompanied we'd rather not have the accident but at the same time given that life is full of accidents i think we would probably want to live in a world where we feel connected to people in our pain and we might even take more pain and more connection than slightly less pain, but no connection. Well, I'll respond like an economist for a minute, um, which doesn't seem possible. Does not like, does not seem to be an example of economics, but uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis of 2008, uh, Arnold Kling, a friend of mine, economist, frequent econ talk guest, would often remark that a natural impulse after a financial crisis like that is is to try to reduce it, the probability of it happening again. In fact, what we want to do is reduce the probability to zero. And he made the point that that's a bad strategy because it's not possible. It's much better to find ways to reduce the harm from it when it happens rather than trying to reduce it, keep it from happening at all. And I think there's an analogy there to the example you just gave, very um, helpful one, which is, like you said, accidents happen all the time. Pain and suffering are part of the human experience. Things don't turn out the way we like, and things happen to us through no one's fault, and sometimes through someone's fault, but things happen to us. And our natural impulse is to say, I don't want those, I want to reduce the chances of those things happening. Uh, and in particular, to come back to parenting for a minute, I think to a large extent, we have a very natural desire to, to insulate our children from pain because their pain is painful to us. And we think we're doing them a service when we protect them. And of course, often we are. But maybe a better strategy in general, not so much the parenting one, but partly with the parenting one is to say, I can't prevent pain and suffering. I want to spend more time, as you suggested, being alongside people in their pain. 
uh, rather than trying to reduce the chance that that pain happens. And I think the ability to accompany someone full-heartedly is very hard and very rare. It's an art. It is. It comes naturally to some people, but often not to most of us. And I, I'm for me, it's akin to being present. So being present for someone who needs us is, uh, I don't mean physically being in the same room, I mean giving them our full attention and not doing it as a favor and not doing it as a, um, a quid pro quo for when they were with us, but rather treating them as a full sentient human being who is flawed, imperfect, needy, as we all are, and giving them what they need at the time, which we don't often know. We don't always know, um, to, be, to be honest, but to be prepared to be present, to be prepared to accompany, to be prepared to be uh, a companion is a profoundly important act that um, I don't think we're well-schooled in. I think it's, um, for those of us that doesn't come, who, where it doesn't come so naturally, it's, um, it's a very powerful and important thing. You've mentioned presence a bunch. You've mentioned Hasidism and Rebbe Nachman. And some of what I'm hearing, and I could be projecting here, but I'll just, I'll give it, what comes up for me is a non-cognitive or non-rational, which isn't to say anti-rational, approach to the most important things in life. So it's not to say that reason isn't a tool that can help us, um, but if the thing that's doing the work of making life worth living and giving life its dignity is not coming from reason and it's coming from things like presence and accompaniment, it seems like what we need is more training in and more uh, valuing of the non-cognitive modes of being in the world. And I mean, you and I both spent, have spent a lot of time and do spend a lot of time in academia and Shalem College has probably got a lot of focus on cognition and probably selects for very talented, uh, sharp minds. So how do you, how do you think about the place of the non-cognitive in the world, the place of the non-cognitive in the world of people who are sharp and also how we might, we cognitive people, uh, might be more pluralistic or more open to people who could teach us things like presence or accompaniment who might not have the brains to, you know, do really well on the SAT or, or, or what have you. Let me rephrase your question in a, an area with maybe a little less baggage for me and maybe you, um, then we may try to answer the harder question. When I talk to people who are successful in life, they often tell me that they followed their gut or they follow their intuition, or they have a hunch. And I was tempted in my book to write about that. I did not. Um, I don't say, oh, well, when you're having trouble making a rational choice, just follow your gut. <laughs> That's probably bad advice. And yet there is something happening there that I do not understand that is related to your point about non-cognitive methods, right? People will make a case for something that, and something is in the back of your mind nagging you that there's something missing. And so you don't go along with the report 
or you don't hire this person. Everyone thinks they're great, but you have a um, just a hunch that it's a mistake. Now, that thing called a hunch ha- has a rational piece, a cognitive piece to it. You could argue that over time, skilled people who have lots of life experiences develop techniques and methods for making decisions that are outside the, say, evidentiary kind. At the same time, you know, I know we've got a lot of biases and that the reason you don't want to hire that person isn't because you have a hunch. It's because it reminds you that, you know, person you dated back in college and it's totally irrational and it's not fair to that person who's not that person you dated. And so I, I don't, I don't know how to think about this systematically other than to say there are, um, you know, I think it's Pascal said the heart has its reasons, the reason does not know. So there's something to that and it's also dangerous. So I don't have any, I wish I had something more systematic uh, to say about it. But on the point that you brought it to, which is about presence and I, I, I would call those things, um, they go against the current of our modern culture in the following sense. Our culture is really focused on life hacks and productivity hacks and multitasking and ways to be more efficient and how to sleep, get behind four hours of sleep and how to be fit with seven minutes of exercise. You know, there's an, we have an obsession with this kind of, this kind of um, efficiency and, and I do think that we need to be schooled and trained and practiced in the art of resting, putting things down, uh, letting things go. Those do not come naturally to us anymore most of the time if we're in modern culture. So in that sense, I think that devoting time to someone who's, quote, not worth it to take a really awful way of describing part of what we're talking about. Like, I don't want to do a cost-benefit analysis on my, uh, whether my wife needs me to come home at a certain time tonight. I don't want to say, yeah, she's probably fine. I'll I'll just, and I really need to get this done. And I'm going to be there for her, you know, and and I want to, I want to do the right thing. It's just really hard to do the right thing. A lot of times we have plenty of excuses and plenty of reasons we convince ourselves that we should be doing something instead of the right thing. And I think that's the sense in which the cognitive is overrated. Um, It's very easy for us to fool ourselves into what we think of as best or authentic to go back to our earlier conversation, when in fact, it's just really what we want to do and we're we're fooling ourselves. So that sense in which I would say that the cognitive is overrated or that rationality is overrated, Self-awareness about our own limitations, our own delusions, is uh, a very fertile area for self-improvement for most of us. That's a great answer. So one of the questions that, that I have about wild problems is that they're very individual. We've, we've talked about that. They're singular. And yet we live with others who have their own wild problems and wild calculations. And not just in one household, but as a society and as a globe, you know, there are 8 billion people (laughs) with uh, each one with a set of wild problems. And so I had two topics that I wanted to get into with you on that, on the sort of the collective experience of the wild problem. One is trade 
and the other is politics. So let's do trade. Um, do you think of free markets, broadly understood, as a good mechanism precisely because my wild problem and your wild problem are different? And so we can um, we can both benefit our wild problems. We can both find solutions for our wild problems through commerce. Whereas if our wild pro- if if our problems were the same, then neither one of us, uh, I guess, we'd be we'd be competing with each other to get the better deal. But um, I can buy something from you, and we can both walk away feeling like we got the better deal because our our calculations are different. Do you, do you see a map, a way of mapping mapping on? the discovery of wild problems into some economic thesis about trade and free society? Not in the sense in which I mean wild problems. I think, yes, in the sense that I think you're stretching my definition. <laughs> Sorry. Which, wait, that's all right. No, it's interesting. I have a metaphor for this. I call it um, the weaver of dreams. So, you know, I have my dreams, things that I want to achieve, things I like, things I want to do, things I want to explore, things I want to acquire, skills I want to grow at, um, and you have yours. And, um, you know, to take the most simple, basic version of this, um, you know, I'm going to throw a brunch tomorrow, or and so I call the, the mayor's office, and I say, you know, I've got a brunch coming up, and uh, I need about 30 bagels, so could you just make sure that there's enough for me and make sure that Zohar doesn't get his this week because I, I need mine. And, and, you know, I've got a dream of a brunch and you've got a dream of a brunch and I want mine, you want yours. And how, how's that going to work out? And the answer is, is that in a decently organized economic system, we don't fight over the bagels, which is a miracle we don't ever think enough about, which is because the price adjusts in ways that there's enough bagels for me and for you. And it's too high for some people, so they buy something less fancy than a bagel. And for other people, they, they actually aspire to something nicer than it. They want a croissant and uh, they're going to be able to buy those. And my claim is that in the market, there's no weaver of dreams. There's nobody making sure that your dreams don't step on mine and my dreams don't step on yours. You know, I want to be a couch potato, so I want lots of flavors of potato chips, but you want to make sure there's um, special sneakers that special athletic shoes for racquetball. And you get that, you get that too. It's not like, oh, uh, we took care of the guy on the couch this year. So, so hard the exerciser, Mr. Fitness, he's not going to get his special shoes. It's too hard. Everybody can kind of have what they want. And that is the sense in which I think the, the vision of economic freedom and letting markets adjust and provide things that different people want and not trying to predict them in advance and not having a government organized uh, provision of those things is actually incredibly important for harmony and getting along with other people because they don't have to lobby City Hall to make sure there's enough poppy bagels and you, you happen to like sesame. Okay, great. So, and so, so your your answer helped helped me clarify, I think, w- what I'm trying to ask, which is, so in in your example, the 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 absence of a Dreamweaver allows me to get my sneakers and you to get your potato chips. Which is nice. I mean, it's definitely not to be under understated. But like when I think about a life well lived, I probably could live my my life without the sneakers and you without the potato chips. So the question is, does the advancement in 
the way that we do commerce have any upside for the way that we're able to pursue the question of the life well lived? Or is that basically neutral or unaffected by how much nice stuff we have and whether, you know, we've raised life expectancy and, and whatever things, uh, what one might attribute, let's say to more gains from trade. Well, the common answer to your question is it goes the other way, uh, quoting Wordsworth, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, uh, that, that the commercial and material world is a distraction from what really matters. Um, and uh, championing of the material, in this case, meaning stuff, distracts us from more important and meaningful pursuits. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, Adam Smith thought it went the other way. Adam Smith believed and argued that because um, your desires are not the same as mine, I have to put myself in your shoes to some extent to figure out what shoes you want to wear. I have to imagine what it's like to be a fan of racquetball because uh, otherwise I'm not going to make the right shoes for you. And I, 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 so I think both are present. I think they're, if we're not careful, we're consumed by the rat race of material, the pursuit of the material. And similarly, if we're not careful, we can have an economic system that is um, degradingly impoverished and we spend way too much time trying to just stay alive. And that doesn't leave us time for higher things and our lifespan is shorter, et cetera. So, I, you know, I, like most things, I think it's complicated. I think a thoughtful person uh, who enjoys good things, as, as I do, also has to constantly remind oneself that um, there are more, there are finer pleasures than a really good smartphone, um, even like a lot of pleasure from a smartphone. So I don't think there's a simple answer to that. I don't think, you know, people who, you know, I like this joke, I think, I think it's from Mad Magazine. You know, under capitalism, man impresses man, and under socialism, it's the other way around. Cap under communism, it's the other way around. Um, anybody who thinks that the communist uh, system of the Soviet Union discouraged material impulses doesn't know much about what it was like to live in the Soviet Union. Uh, now, you could say, well, they just didn't do it right. There's a way to do it so that it would have been more utopian and, and finer and more civilized. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that the impulses of egalitarianism in that system didn't, did not just fail to produce a better human being. They actually produced a world that was less pleasant than uh, a, a a capitalist world. Now, again, maybe they should. They just did it wrong. I'm, I'm open to that. Um, I, I don't want to judge the the impulse forever and say it's it's over. Uh, that that impulse is ne can never be done well. But I do think it's a lot trickier that, than we might think. So, to come back to your question, I think you know the material, the the cornucopia of modern economic life, which is available much more widely than any other time in human history to the to more people is mainly a good thing, uh, but it does not change the fact that um, if you're not careful, you will constantly be thinking, I need a nicer car. Why does that person have a better house than mine? The world is unjust. I need to go to Wall Street instead of teach at you know, Shalom College. And 
it's challenging, you know, it's hard. Like you know, we, we have those impulses in us and we need to be fight them as best we can. Do you think that there are better or worse ways to organize political life if you want to encourage more people to engage in the kind of hard decision-making that you describe in the book? In other words, let's say that Darwin could have made the, the wrong decision if he had simply imitated somebody instead of really sat down and thought hard about what he wanted for himself. I feel like the, the, the project, the existentialist project is so individualistic and yet political life is about the social project and harmoni- maybe not harmonizing, but allowing people to pursue their projects in tandem with other people. So how do we create a society at any level or at any scale that honors, not only honors, because that sounds more like tolerates, but actually has the resources to encourage more authenticity or more soulfulness or again, like the language, the language fails me, but just sort of um, going back to the two by two, I think the liberal, the, the liberal project does a really good job of protecting people from coercion. It does a harder job. It has a much harder job of getting people to know what to value and what to pursue. And so I'm not saying we should go back to like, authoritarianism just because it gave us meaning but how do we how do we introduce more meaning into people's life in a in a society that has liberalism as its fundament there's a lot there i don't i don't agree with all of it um with some of the premises so maybe we'll start there i think it's a mistake to look for politics to, to look for meaning through a political solution um you know a meaningful life with an authoritarian is a unlikely outcome. Um, a benevolent authoritarian, uh, you might be right. There aren't many of those. Don't Can't name any, by the way. Never, There, as far as I know, there is no one in the history of human affairs who had extreme power and did not abuse it. Um, and, and instead used it wisely for the benefit of all, say. You know, I used to, I like this example I heard from Bruce Wayne de Mesquita on an early econ talk about King Leopold of Belgium. In Belgium, you know, he was revered as this wonderful king who um, brought social security and other welfare programs and, and other things to the people of Belgium. And the people of Congo was more like a murdering, exploiting, horrible person who killed millions of people. So which one was the real King Leopold? Well, the answer was in Belgium, he was constrained by the parliament. And in Congo, he was a man of total authority. And when he had total authority, he was a wicked man. So let's call him wicked. That's Bruce's argument. I'm sympathetic to it. And in particular, you said something along the way. You said it like it was like a a throwaway line, well, you know, politics is where you, you know, work together to make, to, to be, uh, build a community. I don't think that works very well. Um, I'd rather build a community that's small around my synagogue or my hobbies or my cause that I'm doing to help some group uh, who's, who's having a hard time. Uh, I don't want to get my community so much through the political process. It's a cesspool. It's a sausage factory. It's typically abused to help one person at the expense of another, which we call a zero-sum game. That's the jargon for that. So I'm, I'm not an anarchist at all, 
people often assume I'm an anarchist or I'm against government involvement and everything. I'm not. I think that we really, that's it's a different kind of mistake. But the idea that the political process is ours or that in a democracy, that, that we, through the political process, get what we want is, I think, a form of, that's an illusion. There's no we. And because there's no we, there's just a bunch of different people with different desires and different dreams. We want different things, and the political system tends to give us one thing. So I want to take as many things as possible out of the political system that has that straitjacket and keep the things that should be there. National defense, uh, other things we might, infrastructure, uh, security of various kinds. Uh, in the other areas, track record's not so good. Like, doesn't run a really good education system here in Israel or in the United States. Um, it's not really, there's not a lot of evidence that it's doing the kumbaya work that you would like it to do. Again, not saying it can't be done, can't, not saying that there aren't reforms to the system that might bring it closer to an ideal that we could agree on. But I want to find, I don't want to use that political system. Personally, I don't want to use it for my own source of meaning. Uh, I think that's part of the problem we're living in right now is that people are holding on to their ideological and political views in, as a, uh, in a dogmatic way, lack, lacking respect for their uh, intellectual opponents. That's really not working out real well right now. And I see the future being darker even than it is. It's pretty dark now, it's gonna get darker, I'm afraid. So um, I would always encourage people to find their meaning and their purpose elsewhere. Um, and I think we should be steely eyed. So uh, let me make a confession. I gave a very romantic description of the market a minute ago. I like doing that because I don't think it gets many defenders. So it's not really the worst thing that somebody could actually sell an idealized version of the weaver of dreams and your my potato chips and your shoes. And so I, I wrote a book about that to some extent. You know, that's, some, that's a theme of one of maybe two of my books. Similarly, I don't think it's such a bad, but, but that that's because the market is undervalued. It's It's misappreciated. And similarly, I think the political sphere is overvalued and overappreciated. Again, I don't think it should be destroyed. I don't think we should have anarchy or no government, but often we romanticize what government can do and has done. Uh, so that, that's my, um, that's not my shtick. <laughs> I got a big question for you in light of that, um, okay. which is how you think about Israel and Zionism, especially given uh, in my view, and maybe you'll you'll reject the premise, the the founders of uh, of Israel and and the visionaries of the entire endeavor found religiosity in the project of nation building. They weren't even religious people; they were actually anti-religious, and they basically instituted civic religion. And that is why we have the miracle that is Israel, which is a place that allows for people to be religious and anti-religious, and all call themselves Israeli. So, like. I could see how your theory of um, minimize the political and invest in the local would work without the Jewish part of Jewish state. But how does it relate to the Jewish part of Israel? Is it is a place to imagine Jewish self determination and you know all that romantic stuff that uh, like maybe the answer is well that stuff is act needs to be sort of peeled back and it's and it's the reason why Israel isn't doing as well as it's doing but 
you know, I'd just be curious to hear how you think about um, the fact that often it's the romantics who create the biggest paradigm shifts. Uh, and, and well, I'm, I'm a big fan of romanticism, right? You can t- I'm not, I'm not steely-eyed about many things generally, so that's okay. I, I think, but I think your your question is a good question. I think one ha- as an Israeli. As a Jew in the Jewish state, you have to, conf- who happens to like markets more than the average human being, uh, you have to confront the reality that the state was established by socialists, you know, that, uh, and that the, the, the emotional origins of the state as a nar- the narrative that people held to was that it was a communal place. Uh, and, and that it was a state that took care of its citizens, whatever that sentence means. I hate to say it. those words don't come easily out of my mouth, but I think that's a reality. Uh, and I think there, you know, a different way to ask your question would be, you know, if you're a believer in intellectual humility, as I am, isn't that always an excuse to sit on the sidelines and be critical of anybody who's overconfident? And the answer is you're right, uh, which is another way to phrase your question. Obviously, Israel has changed a lot over the 74 years of its, uh, of its existence. It's, um, it's less socialist. It still has many vestiges of socialism. The kibbutz movement has pretty much died, but it had a run, which is quite amazing in and of itself. But, you know, the, the part that's hard for me is that, is that I have a strong individualistic bent. And there is a strong collective feeling here in Israel that I enjoy. And now I enjoyed it somewhat in, Israel, in America too, um, less so over the years because the national narrative of the United States has become so fractured into different narratives that you don't have that feeling. Now there's a fractured narrative here in Israel as well. The religious secular split for sure, the left-right split over the Palestinian and Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, But there is something still that unites us all here, which is it's a Jewish state. What that exactly means, of course, is something we fight over. And and I try not to say too much about it because I'm a newcomer. And, you know, I I try to keep my head down a little bit because I'm not as informed as I wish I were. But I I do think... um, there's a feeling of belonging here in a nation that is different in many other, than many other nations. And one has to concede the possibility that that may come from roots that I am intellectually opposed to. So that's how I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> I like that. Thank you so much. <laughs> so maybe just taking five steps backwards from the, you know, the, the current moment. What about just Athens and Jerusalem more generally? So you're at Shalem College, which is uh, a college in Israel, a college for leaders who are going to lead the society and um, informed by Torah, informed by a Jewish way of being in the world. Yeah, it's not it's not a religious institution. Right. In fact, we study the, the, the Hebrew Bible and the Talmud, but we also study the Quran and the New Testament because it's part of being an educated person. But the tension that you're talking about is real, is is actual, which is the, the idea behind the college was to help future leaders, and by leaders I mean that very general, I don't mean political leaders, people who would make their mark on this place, 
to help them understand where they came from. And Israel is the product of Athens and Jerusalem. Israel is the product of, oh, we're a democracy, which is a very Western idea. Um, it, we are also a Jewish state. And what that means exactly, it doesn't mean necessarily that you observe the Jewish Sabbath, but I think it's important whether you observe the Jewish Sabbath or not that you understand something about what it is. Uh, that you understand that the wisdom of, say, the Hebrew scriptures is not the same wisdom as Plato and Aristotle, and that sometimes they conflict. And that's okay. Um, it's, uh, there are parts of, within Jerusalem that conflict, within Athens. So uh, it's, the college is an attempt to give people a sense of where they came from and that that, a belief that that helps them decide where they're headed. And um, what is it? What is it from the Jewish tradition that you that you get that you wouldn't get from just the Greek tradition? You know the story about Einstein and the chauffeur. Remind me. I, I sounds familiar. So Einstein's on a speaking tour. He's got a driver, and at some point, after about twelve, thirteen stops in speeches, the driver says, "You know, I've heard that speech so many times. I think I could give it." And Einstein says, "That's a great idea." He says, so, so Einstein puts on the chauffeur cap. He gives the driver the tweed jacket with the elbow patches. And sure enough, the chauffeur gets up there and he gives this brilliant speech. And uh, he's, he's so proud he can do it. And he steps down off the platform and the chairman of the event says, yeah, I think we have time for a question. And somebody asks a question about the space-time continuum and relativity. And the chauffeur says, you know, that question's so easy, even my chauffeur could answer it. And he points to Einstein and wearing the chauffeur's cap. So when you're asking me, what, what is there in, in, in Jerusalem, the science, I would say, you know, that question is so easy. I'm going to refer it to my dean of faculty, Leon Cass, <laughs> who's been thinking about this for, oh, about 50 years. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, if I think about it more generally, there are many things in Jewish tradition and Jewish wisdom and Jewish text that conflict with modernity and that make people uncomfortable. And I, you know, as a Jew, I think that's that's part of being a Jew is that you have to deal with that. It's a reality. Um, so, you know, a lot of people argue, I think they're right that that part of being Jewish is to, holding, is to hold two contradictory views at the same time and be passionate about both of them. Um, it's not very rational, but I guess, but you know, there's this, there's this, um, Cartesian idea that from Descartes, you know, that that you should always be inspecting the planks of the boat because one of them could be rotten, in which case you should replace it. And the pragmatist philosophers respond and say, you know, if you're always pulling up the planks, you're not going to get very far, and worse, you're going to you're going to confuse yourself into thinking that the planks are fine when they're not, or vice versa. You're going to be constantly replacing planks that are okay. So, you know, I think the fact that there are contradictions in our worldview, one's worldview is, is, is often a reality. Um, part of what we're doing here at Shalem is, is letting people understand what those views are. These are things that are not so much respected anymore, right? They did, you should read Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Shakespeare, the Quran, the New Testament, and the, and the Hebrew Bible for wisdom strikes many people as strange because they're, they've been superseded by many, many things, of course, that are better. 
why would you waste your time on those? Whereas we think here that immersing yourselves in those texts produces uh, timeless understanding because there's a reason those are classic texts. They have stood the test of time and they're relevant for how we make our way in the world and they're relevant for understanding how others make their way in the world. So we take them all very seriously, actually. When you're reading those great books, are you reading them through the eyes of an economist? Are you reading them through the eyes of a humanist? Do you, do you feel like there's a sort of a single shita, a single method that, that guides you, what, you know, regardless of genre or time period? Or do you feel like it's more sui generis and like Aristotle needs Aristotle eyes, but Dorian Gray needs Dorian Gray eyes? Well, I'll channel my inner Leon Cass, and I'll answer you by saying that, you know, you respect the text, you, you take the text on its own terms. You don't say, well, you know, Aristotle, here's what we know about him, and therefore, when we're reading this passage, we should remember that, fill in the blank. You might get to that point later, at some point, uh, but you start with respect for the text on its own terms, um, and you try not to impose your modern spectacles on them. Um, now, the economist part's a little more interesting, you know, I, at least it doesn't happen so much anymore. I, I don't know whether it's, I don't know why, but it used to be, a, you know, I'd go to a movie, and there'd be some scene in the movie that would just drive me crazy because as an economist, I knew it was wrong or it bothered my own way of looking at the world. And so, it, you know, I'd say to my wife, that was a horrible movie. Oh, I liked it. What was wrong with it? Well, that, that three-minute scene in the grocery was just totally wrong. <laughs> So I think you should try to, you know, restrain yourself on those terms in that way. Um, I think you should read these texts, you know, as to be cliched about as a human being. It's kind of simple. Um, there's a wonderful book came out recently, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Sanders, where he takes classic Russian short stories and, and teaches us how to read them. And uh, it's a powerful book because, first of all, you can read those stories and miss a bunch of stuff that he sees that you don't see, and it's wonderful. But the real lesson he's bringing out in there is, is the understanding of the human condition that Tolstoy and Chekhov and, and others and Gogol bring. And I think um, when you're trained in a discipline like economics, you are trained to see people in a certain way. It's sometimes very useful, um, but it's narrow. It's narrow. And sometimes it's good to be narrow because you have a certain goal and you want to achieve a certain understanding of what might happen if you, say, put price controls on, in which case you should probably think of people in a pretty simple way. But most interesting questions of life, that simple way is going to miss out on stuff, you know. So try to read it as a human being. Uh, and, and I think the great writers and authors of the past, um, they didn't write like economists. <laughs> they were like human beings, for human beings. And they understood the complexity of human behavior, not the narrow version that most disciplines bring. So um, Heidegger says that every great thinker thinks one thought only, which is kind of a riff on um, uh, on the, uh, the I think it's right, Archilochus, the, the hedgehog and the fox. Yeah. The, the, the fox knows many things. The hedgehog knows one big thing. Yeah, Isaiah Berlin gets credit for that, but he yeah. actually didn't make it up. Good point. And <laughs> and um, I think Agamben has a has a line in one of his in the preludes to one of his books, Infancy in History, where he says, 
every book I write is my attempt to write the book I cannot write. Um, <laughs> do you feel like there's a single idea that guides what you're looking for or what you're finding in, you know, your curious conversations, whether those are with guests on your podcast or whether that's the, the dead, the dead, the ghosts uh, that, that, that you're hosting when you, when you read, is there one big thing that you're looking for or that you found? And is it, is it something having to do with this being human? Or would you say that the, important thing is to con is to constantly take off the hedgehog tendency because that leads to overconfidence and arrogance and sort of forcing things into your model. And so you're the, the one big thing, you know, is paradoxically that we must, we should tr aspire to be foxes. It's a very powerful tool to have a hammer, especially if you have nails to drive and a hammer that can hammer different kinds of nails is really a, an even better tool. But when you got a hammer, you do tend to forget that not everything's a nail. And so the danger of a great thinker, the power of a great thinker is that a great thinker illuminates things that you did not understand beforehand. Um, and I think dogmatic thinking does that too, by the way, we haven't talked about this, but I think when you bring a dogmatic approach, a blinkered approach, you often will, it will cause you to see things you couldn't otherwise see, but of course you'll miss things you wouldn't see otherwise because you're blinkered. Um, so I love the question, like, is there an is there a thought or a, it, since I've given up some of the dogma of my economic training, have I replaced it with a different dogma? And I, and I think I have, actually. I think if you had to summarize what the book I'm trying to write now in general is that's my current world, it's that everything's complicated. It's... Um, and if I had to have a, a phrase that captured the way I look at the world, it's complicated. It's not a bad phrase. Um, it's not the best hammer <laughs> because it doesn't drive a lot of nails down. It, uh, it actually is constantly reminding you that maybe some nails should be left undriven and you should maybe just not even put a nail there to start with. As long as you should put down your hammer. Um, I like to quote this parable, this proverb from uh, uh, Nassim Taleb, which is, Nicholas Taleb, which is, you know, the, the, the farther from the shore, the deeper the ocean. And I think uh, appreciating the ocean's depth is um, a lot of what captures the way I think about things, at least at this stage of my life. That's the refrain that keeps haunting me. Maybe it'll change the tune sometime after at some point, but that's the tune that haunts me, I think, uh, as I've gotten older. It reminds me of the, the Socratic orientation to the world, you know, the Zetetic, the seeking, the seeking point, which is actually he's often talking to craftspeople, people who are very good at one thing. And uh, the question is, is, is philosophy like that, just a different different craft, or is philosophy a kind of unbuilding and a kind of unlearning of the prejudices needed to be accomplished in your very narrow thing. So um, it's it's been a pleasure to go on this conversational journey with you and uh, I thank you for all of your work. Thank you, Zohar, it's a blast. Appreciate it. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. 
It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.